today. Instead of exposition, an exposition of a particular passage, which is our habit week in and week out, we are going to do a topical study. I rarely do those, but today we are a topical study of an important biblical subject that is related to relationships, and that topic is forgiveness, or at least we're going to end up there talking about forgiveness eventually after looking at some related subjects first. This study was prompted by last week's exposition of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. If you're visiting with us here on Sunday mornings, we are going through 1 Thessalonians together. In verse 15, we looked at the biblical command for Christians to avoid all forms of retaliation when they've been sinned against, whether it's retaliating and to get revenge, to avenge themselves, retaliating in deed or words or even bad attitude. Instead of doing that, we are in great humility and patience to do something different. We are to return good to the person who has sinned against us. That was 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15. But I mentioned at the end of that sermon that something connected to the biblical approach to being wronged is the doctrine of forgiveness. In other words, if we are not seeking revenge then in essence, we are seeking to forgive the person. But what does it mean to forgive? Well, to set the stage for understanding forgiveness biblically and as well even how to live it out practically in our lives, we first need to address a couple of related concepts. And the first one is the topic of guilt. We need to begin with a definition of guilt. Many misunderstand it. Guilt is a legal liability or culpability to punishment. In a word, it's a position that you're in. Now, many people think of guilt as being only a feeling. We have guilty feelings or we feel guilty, but biblically, guilt is a position. Feelings may or may not accompany guilt. But if a person has done something wrong, then they are guilty whether they feel guilty or not. Now, here's an illustration I heard many years ago. I stole this from somebody. I don't know from whom, but it can help explain this a bit. Just imagine a person driving 100 miles per hour on the freeway, but then the individual suddenly slows down to 35 miles an hour because there is a speed limit posted now of 15 miles per hour due to some reason. So that individual slows down from 100 all the way down to 35. How does he feel? Well, he feels like he's a really good driver because he slowed down so much, but it doesn't matter. The posted speed limit was 15, so by driving 35, he is guilty and thus liable for punishment. So when he's pulled over by the officer, his defense should not be, well, officer, you should have seen what I was driving. So this is pretty good, 35. No, he's guilty. So we can be truly guilty and not feel guilty. And as well, someone may feel guilty and not be guilty. 
By the way, on that issue, the world likes to call that idea false guilt. But that is not a concept found in Scripture. I suggest that we reserve the term guilt and use it to what it really does refer to, a person's position of culpability. And today we are primarily talking about being culpable before God. If a person is guilty before God, it is because they have violated his timeless law in some way. And of course, another word for violating his timeless law is sin. It is sin that makes a person guilty before God and thus liable for his punishment. Now this problem, sin, of course, is universal. We're familiar with what Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is universal, and therefore guilt is universal. But the question could be asked, what kind of sin are we talking about that can result in being guilty before God? Well, guilt is the result of any sin, whether it is sin expressed toward another person or sin private private sin in the mind and a sin of the motive, it doesn't matter, any sin. And this certainly includes the more obvious sins that come to mind. We tend to think of the more obvious sins as murder, adultery, fornication, those two together. Any sexual sin, activity is sexual sin if it's outside the boundaries of marriage. Murder, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, extreme abuse, lying, theft, The big sins, for sure, but there are seemingly less consequential sins that still result in guilt, sins that the author Jerry Bridges several years ago famously called in a book, respectable sins. What are those? Anxiety, frustration, fear, discontentment, ingratitude, pride, selfishness, anger, Let me pause there just for a moment about that one, anger. We must not forget what Jesus said about anger in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's true. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Pretty sobering words. The Apostle John wrote this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Back to the list of respectable sins. That list continues. We could add to that list lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, lust. Let me stop there again. Jesus also commented on lust in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Again, in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a man with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, guilty before God. And again, the list of seemingly less consequential sins continues. We could add these sins to that list. Judgmentalism, love of money, greed and materialism, envy, 
jealousy, sins of the tongue like gossip and slander and hurtful speech, anything related to worldliness, ungodliness, hypocrisy. And I'm sure there's more that could be listed. The point is, any and every sin committed results in this position, guilt, the position of being liable for God's punishment. And this guilt can have devastating effects in a person's life. Listen, there are people all around us right now, all over the world really, living under the devastating pressure of their guilt. And of course, many don't know that that's the reason for their unhappiness. That's the reason for their misery and their lack of direction in life. For feeling that God is against them in some way. Or for some, it's even the reason for their depression and their fatigue and a host of other emotional and sometimes even physical maladies. Now, we get a glimpse of the potential devastating emotional and physical effects of guilt in a couple of David's psalms. One is Psalm 32. This has a connection to the more famous Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 soon after coming to repentance, after his sin with Bathsheba, while it was still very fresh on his heart and he was so uh, grieved over it. This psalm is written about the same sin, but sometime later, as he looked back on that event and what the guilt had done to him. He writes in verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. There's that divine pressure from God. My vitality, my strength, my drive was drained away as with fever heat of summer. David wrote another psalm like this. It references a different time of guilt in his life over a different sin. Look at these phrases he uses. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh, my body, in other words, because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much. Again, the pressure... My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over, greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh, my body. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. It was a mess. Some of those statements definitely refer to mental and emotional misery. And some are indeed referring to physical symptoms he was really having. The point, again, is that guilt produces devastating results. And people feel those effects because God has given to every person a warning light. If you're old enough to remember, there used to be a, a red warning light on car dashboards. It's more involved now. A warning light. In this case, a warning light that's internal that reveals guilt. It's called the conscience. Every person has a conscience. It's filled with information. It's been programmed, so to speak. Programmed by what people learn. Programmed by what we experience. So by way of the conscience, the inner man uses that information possessed by the conscience to evaluate our thinking and our actions. And it makes a judgment whether something is right or wrong to us. 
Now, if the information contained in the conscience is biblical, then the conscience can be a wonderful guard for us in our lives. Never say that our conscience is our guide or let your conscience be your guide. No, that's wrong. Scripture is our guide. But conscience is meant to be our guard to keep us from sin. It can function that way when it's programmed correctly. It can convict us of sin when we're guilty. It's, it's what God uses is to produce sorrow in our heart that is that, that sense or feeling of guilt. However, if it's not trained properly, we won't sense conviction. And we may even feel good about doing something that is wrong. So a properly functioning conscience is crucial. It's the arbitrator of our thinking, the arbitrator of our actions. And when it helps keep us from sinning, then the conscience is, is clear. We have a clear conscience, or as it says in Acts 24, I do my best to always maintain a blameless conscience before the Lord and men. The unknown writer of Hebrews, we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. But that's not the only kind of conscience that Scripture mentions. Scripture talks about a conscience that's not clear. Instead, it's been defiled. It's been seared. It happens because of repeated sin, just sinning over and over. It does that to the conscience. Bad theology can help defile the conscience. Making excuses over and over can help defile the conscience. You see it in 1 Timothy 4 too. They are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Paul wrote Titus, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Ephesians 4 doesn't use the word conscience in verse 19, but that's what it's talking about. They have become callous. What does that mean? Hardened. Why? Because their conscience is seared. And they've given themselves over to sensual sin, sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's evidence of a seared conscience. So we should seek to have a conscience that's regularly trained by God's Word so that we know what God has prohibited and we know what God has commended so that we can know if we're guilty. Well, if the conscience has done that, it's brought us to understand guilt, then what's the solution? The solution to guilt. The world doesn't have one. Very few unbelievers, if any, understand what we're talking about here, about guilt, what it really is. Oh, I get it that when the, the law of the land has been violated in some way, when a crime has been committed, yes, a judge may rightly pronounce the, an individual, the perpetrator, guilty, we understand that, but I'm talking about outside the courtroom. I'm talking about when someone is miserable in life, perhaps even struggling with feeling guilty for some reason and, and seeks counseling, seeks help. Our culture takes the, the approach of just focusing on the effects of the guilt. The world really does not counsel people from the standpoint that sin is real and guilt is real and it's serious. They merely try to explain it away. <clears throat> I'll tell you some of the common cultural ways and explanations for people's problems when it's sin and guilt that's causing it. One approach is to blame the problems on the environment. 
you know, people have just wrongly developed certain tendencies in their, in their lives due to their upbringing, due to their family situation, or due to the neighborhood they were raised in, or something like that. It, it, it's just a result of the environment that they were raised in, or it's the result of sickness. Many behaviors have been renamed as syndromes and disorders in our world as if there is an organic cause when many times no organic cause has been proven at all. It's blamed on heredity, the person's behavior. It's just a genetic issue, even though no definite proof is provided to that. It doesn't matter whether they're just sort of focusing on the environment to be at blame or sickness being blamed or heredity being blamed. What ties all that together is one common thought from the world's viewpoint, and it's this. You are not to blame for your problems. It's not your fault. And therefore, you have no need to feel guilty. And yet, if the real reason for a person's misery and their behavior is just continually ignored like that or just explained away, people still feel guilty at some point. And then they began to take efforts to try to to numb those guilty feelings. Do you know the way people try to to numb their guilty feelings? One way is this, just commit more sin, self-gratification. Because the more a person engages in a particular sin, the less their conscience is bothered, so mission accomplished. They don't feel guilty anymore. Their conscience is seared. They turn to chemicals to numb the feelings, medication, alcohol, drugs. This is the way that people will, they hope, will provide some escape from their their issues. And at a superficial level, it works. No guilty feelings for a while. A very old approach that people take called blame shifting. This approach has a very long history, does it not? goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Just think about Adam and Eve living in a perfect environment. No curse on the world yet. Enjoying intimate fellowship with God. In a marriage where there was no hint of selfishness or pride or anything like that. A marriage never touched by sin. But they disobeyed God. And they were overcome with misery and guilt. And the first thing they did was cover themselves due to feeling ashamed. And then they sought to hide from God, which just shows you how irrational their thinking had become. But once God confronted them, they continued ignoring the real cause of their problems, and they began this approach of blame shifting. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed the woman. And as well, Adam blamed God. Lord, it's the woman you gave me is the problem. So yes, people try to numb their guilty feelings by self-gratification, more sin, chemicals, blame shifting, or even buying into the world's false teaching about increasing self-esteem and self-love. People are encouraged to love themselves more, to think more highly of themselves, and therefore get rid of their guilty feelings Listen, at best, all these approaches provide a temporary fix because the culture's understanding of guilt and the attempts to deal with guilt are inadequate at best and overtly wrong at worst. And that's a problem because guilt is serious. God is a holy judge. 
And guilt will remain even if it is explained away, even if the feelings and the effects are somehow lessened, the guilt is still there in God's eyes. And where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable from a just, holy God. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 2, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath. Keep on sinning, keep on sinning and defiling and searing your conscience. You're just storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So what is the solution to guilt? Or as I evidently put on the slide, the Latin form, soluntion to guilt. I think I was just using the Latin there. (laughs) Fix that in your mind. The answer is forgiveness through repentance, which means we need to say a brief word about repentance. The Greek term translated repentance basically means a change of mind, a change of thinking. So it's a 180-degree turn, change in thinking, a reversal of the way of evaluating things, self, God, the world, sin, everything. And then that 180-degree turn in thinking results in a 180-degree turn in behavior. This is necessary for salvation, for conversion. Repentance is connected to salvation, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance leading to salvation. So unsaved people must be told this. They must turn. They must repent, which is turning from the state of self-rule that they've been living in because now they understand they're not God. They're not the Lord. Jesus is Lord. So it's a 180-degree change in thinking about sin and self and Christ and self-rule. They turn from that to follow Christ as the Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You see how repentance is part of a gospel call to people. A call, A gospel call is incomplete if it doesn't Include this, Luke 24, 47, repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So yes, repentance is necessary for coming to Christ to be saved, but repentance from that point on remains continually necessary after conversion in those moments when we still sin as believers. When David wrote Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, he was a saved man. But he was pouring his heart out to God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's the language of repentance. But whether we're talking about repentance connected to salvation or repentance as a believer to restore a right relationship to God, true repentance will include the following elements every time. There will be, first of all, comprehension. By that I mean we must understand the truth about our sin. We must comprehend that and about Christ before we can repent. And true repentance includes confession. The Greek term 
is homologeo, which means say the same, speak the same. To confess means we are saying what God says about our sin. We are acknowledging to God the fact of our sin, and we're agreeing with Him about the nature of our sin. We're not blame shifting. We're not rationalizing. We're not minimizing it. And what a blessing it is to know what 1 John 1 says. If we confess like that our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive, to cleanse, So true repentance includes comprehension, confession. It will include this element, conviction. It's a supernatural element. I'm not talking about a particular visible emotion. There may or may not always be a visible emotion, but in all cases there is a sense of conviction, or another word, sorrow. There's a sense of sorrow. David displayed that, and he wrote this. What God requires is a broken in a contrite heart. And if it's true repentance, there will be choice involved. True repentance always includes a willful resolve to change, making a choice, a resolve to change of putting off and what is wrong and putting on what is right. It's captured in Isaiah 1 there. Remove the evil of your deeds from your sight. Cease to do evil. There's the putting off. Learn to do good. There's the putting on. That's true repentance. And when true repentance occurs, then there's evidence of it, what we call the fruit of repentance. Matthew 3, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Of course, that only makes sense. Acts 26, 20. Repent and turn to God, performing deeds now appropriate to repentance. That's the fruit. Let me just summarize for you what the fruit is of repentance. There's two basic, two general summary elements that will be manifested. One is restitution. Now, restitution is a word that means to make things right, to set things right. The repentant sinner must be willing to fulfill any obligations necessary to the offended party. Now, there's very very clear example of that, a very uh, tangible example of that in the New Testament when Jesus was interacting with Zacchaeus. Do you remember who Zacchaeus was? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You have to be old enough to know those songs. Besides being a wee little man, he was also a dishonest tax collector and he stole from people. But he repented. That's what he said to Jesus. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. He wanted to make it right. There are many sins that don't, that don't require a tangible restitution like that. But restitution still is necessary. In those cases, restitution will include this. A confession of the sin to the offended party to make things right. A genuine confession, a humble confession, and along with that, a willingness to accept whatever consequences of the sin are appropriate. That makes it evident that the person has truly repented. They're willing to confess and they're willing to accept the responsibilities, consequences. But there's something else it's the element of reconciliation. That is part of the fruit of repentance. When our sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another person, true repentance is going to cause us to do whatever we can to transform the conflict into something peaceful. 
Matthew 5, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Go and seek to reconcile. And for me, I think a good verse that just summarizes it all is Proverbs 28, 13, if you just want a good one to memorize. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. There's the answer to the world, to the people who are living in misery all around us. It's pretty clear. If you conceal your transgressions like this, you're not going to prosper. But if you confess and forsake, if there's repentance, you'll you'll find compassion. And that does finally bring us to the main topic of today. The introduction of the sermon is over, and we get to the sermon on forgiveness. Because that is the essence of the compassion. The compassion we find when true repentance has occurred, we find forgiveness. But as we press on this topic now, there are two types of forgiveness. There is vertical forgiveness, we could call it that. That's the forgiveness that we need from God. But there is also a such thing as horizontal forgiveness, the forgiveness we give to others who have sinned against us, or the forgiveness that we receive from someone that we've sinned against. Let's talk about the first one, vertical forgiveness, God's forgiveness. You just need to know the primary Greek verb translated forgive does mean to send away or to release. So it's captured in our word pardon. We send the sin away. We, we, we release the sin. When you talk about sin, maybe our English concept of pardoning is the best. And that's what we need from God. Our sin is a block. If, if we're not in Christ, first of all, If you haven't come to Christ in repentance and faith to be forgiven of your sin, there is a wall there that blocks a relationship with Him. But even if you're saved and a follower of Christ, sin is a block in this way. It interrupts our sense of fellowship and joy at times. So either way, Isaiah 59, 2 applies. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have caused him to hide his face from you, so to speak. So when genuine repentance and confession occurs, our sin is pardoned by God. It's taken out of the way of the relationship with God. In other words, he forgives. That is what people need. In fact, forgiveness has rightly been described as a promise that God makes. When God forgives, he promises that He will never hold our sins against us. In other words, He will not use that sin against us anymore. In Jeremiah 31, 34 are these beautiful words, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. But understand what it says when it says, God says, I will remember it no more. It doesn't mean literally He has no mental cognition about your sin. He's omnipresent and omniscient. He knows everything. He remembers every sin. What it means is, I will not remember your sin and use it against you because I've promised to forgive you, and forgiveness is a promise of pardon. So as I said, we need that forgiveness both before salvation and after salvation, this pardoning. 
Now, before salvation, the forgiveness we receive from God, you could think of it in terms of as judicial forgiveness because he's the judge. Judicial forgiveness. He's a judge delivering us from eternal condemnation. Romans 4, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, not remember, not use against you. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions. He pardoned us as a judge. After salvation, he's not our judge anymore. He's our father. We could call that parental forgiveness now. Fatherly forgiveness. He's our loving father, which is why Jesus taught us to pray that way. We should address our prayers now this way. Our Father who is in heaven. And one of the things we pray to our Father is forgive us of our debts, our sins, our trespasses. That's a prayer that God's fatherly relationship that's been interrupted. It's been disrupted by our sin in some way. And so he's grieved. We're we're praying that that fatherly relationship will be restored, the joy of it and the sense of it restored So that we have the joy of knowing that he's relating to us again as a father to children that he loves. He never stopped loving, but now we have the joy and the sense of it. So as believers, we pray this not to God as the eternal judge anymore, as a father. All that's judicial forgiveness, vertical forgiveness, but there is horizontal forgiveness. Vertical, what we receive from God, but horizontal, now we're talking about in the human realm between people. When someone offends us, sins against us, hurts us, we are commanded to forgive that person because that is being like God. Psalm 86, you're good, Lord, ready to forgive. That's who he is. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. You know, just the way God has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. You know, just as the Lord forgave you. But I want to make it practical for you. I don't want to leave it in the ethereal. At the horizontal level, We are doing what God does in this sense. We are promising pardon. But I think you can flesh it out more practically with these three aspects of the promise. When you forgive somebody, you're promising, first of all, this. I will not continue to think about what you did or said or didn't do or didn't say. In other words, I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell on it. We call that brooding. We're good at brooding. You know, we leave it sitting in the pot. We just move it to a back burner, and we just put it on the first setting, just low. You know, just let it simmer there. We can always bring it back and use it if we need to. No, we're promising we're not going to do that. We can't keep thoughts from going through our mind about what happened. And depending on the severity of the sin, you'll never forget what happened. So I'm not teaching anything, the old adage, forgive and forget. No. I'm teaching forgive and not remember the way God doesn't remember. 
He doesn't use it against you. So we're going to put the wrong thought out of our mind and we're going to put on right thinking that's best captured in Philippians 4. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things, simmer on those things, put out the thought of being hurt and what they did to you and put in there, God is good, here's what he does, here's what his word says, here's the blessings I enjoy and so forth. Here's the second aspect of the pardon. I will not bring up the sin again to punish or embarrass you. I'll not bring it up to you and I'll not bring it up to others. Said differently, I'll not keep reminding you of what you did. I'll not keep it in a little pouch, like a little pouch of pebbles with my David slingshot that I can get out every once in a while and shoot if I don't think the argument's going my way. Or to make you feel bad because I still am smarting over that. No, I'm not going to remind you of it. One exception. Unless it would be absolutely necessary to do for the person's good. There are some sins where somebody needs to be told. And there are sins where it's necessary to discuss it for that person's good to help them. I'm talking about not bringing it up as a weapon. And third, I will not try to make you pay for what you did. I won't punish you. I won't try to retaliate. I won't try to get even with my deeds or my words. I'm not going to forgive you, and then I'm going to keep a bad attitude for a couple of days just so you know and remember what you did to me and how much it bothered me. No, I'm not going to do that. Which leads to a very important fact about forgiveness. What I'm describing to you is unconditional. Unconditional. Doesn't matter whether the other person has repented or not. We get a good picture of the unconditional nature of horizontal forgiveness in Mark 11 25. Whenever you stand praying, you're in prayer, and you know somebody has something against you or you against someone. What does it say to do? Forgive them right then. So in summary, even if the one who has sinned against us has not repented, we're not allowed to hold a grudge. We're not allowed to cherish bitterness in our hearts against the person. We're not allowed to harbor any desire to get even or they be harmed in some way or they be unsuccessful or get run over by an 18-wheeler or anything. In essence, horizontal forgiveness means we're getting rid of any ill feeling, any anger, any bitterness, any resentment toward another person, any kind of ill will at all. And in its place, we're choosing to treat them very kindly and graciously, even desiring their best. Frankly, This definition of horizontal forgiveness, of dealing with your heart and getting rid of anger and bitterness and ill will of the heart, that is the only kind of forgiveness we can practice. We are not God. We cannot literally cancel out somebody else's sin. Not in the way God does. So when someone has hurt you or offended you, or been unjust towards you, perhaps pray to God a prayer like this. This is from a 
good friend of our ministry, Joel James. I think there's a word wrong. It says, or maybe it's another quote I have in a minute. I'll correct it. It's another quote from Joel. Father, you know, it's a good prayer, good example. You know what has happened between me and so-and-so, whoever it is. Help me not to be angry or bitter, nor to seek revenge in any way, but help me to love this person and desire only his good, her good. Please work in his heart and bring him to repentance. Use me in any way you can to help him or her. It's a humble prayer, you see. It's not easy. You're going to have to have a powerful motive to want to do this. So what is the motive for forgiveness? I've already mentioned it. The most powerful motive is remembering what God has forgiven you of. That's the essence of the parable in Matthew 18, 21 and following. The three characters of the parable are the king and servant number one and servant number two. And you remember how the parable goes. The king forgave servant number one of an insurmountable debt. For illustration, a $10 million debt. That was the only hope he had. But servant number one went out and would not forgive servant number two of a minor offense against him, a $10 debt by comparison. And the point of the parable is that the king represents God. Servant number one represents you and me. Servant number two represents anybody that would do anything to us. Even one sin of ours against a holy, righteous God is an insurmountable offense. What somebody does to me by comparison is not as big. When I remember God's forgiveness of me, it helps me forgive others, as does trusting God's sovereignty. That also helps. I mean, whatever's happened, whatever the person did, somehow God was sovereign over that. We can't connect all the dots, but it's true. Joseph understood that in Genesis 50, verse 20, when his brothers came to him scared he was getting revenge from them because of the terrible things they did to him years before. They abused him in a great way, sold him into slavery and all that. By this time, God had worked on Joseph's heart, and he looked at his brothers, and he said, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. He saw God's hand at work. All that together will help you forgive somebody. And that forgiveness is unconditional, but there is something that is conditional. It's a different word reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Though hopefully, forgiveness paves the way for possible reconciliation, but by definition, it takes genuine repentance by the one who has sinned in order to have true reconciliation. It takes two sides. So the one who's the offender must repent in order to restore a relationship, and that's a definition of reconciliation, restoring of a relationship. Now, however, depending on the severity of the sin committed, a caveat again, it is possible that a relationship cannot return to exactly what it was before, depending on the severity of the sin. But still, at the least, even then, The relationship needs to be one of kindness and graciousness to one another. And Scripture teaches that it's the responsibility of both sides to pursue that reconciliation, to try to resolve it. 
to get to a place where the relationship is as right as it can be so that we can treat each other both ways with kindness and graciousness. The two sides are captured in some verses. We've already seen Matthew 5. You know, if you know somebody has something against you, go, reconcile. Matthew 18 is that passage that says that we need to go and confront somebody that sins. If you put those two together, what you really have is this. The offender's responsibility is to seek out the one they've offended. And and what they need to, to do is make a humble admission of their sin and a request that the other person would erase that debt and forgive them. The one sinned against has the responsibility of forgiving, to be gracious, even verbally to assure the person that they're forgiven. But you put those two sides together, you know what you have a picture of? Ideally, the two people meeting in the middle because they were both seeking out the other to try to reconcile. But it doesn't always happen. And regardless of what the other person does, you and I still have the responsibility to pursue peace. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. How does this fit with church discipline, though? The passage in Matthew 18 that, where Jesus commands that if somebody sinned against you or any sin, that one person is to go privately and individually and confront that individual. If they don't repent, two or three witnesses need to verify that no repentance is taking place or repentance has taken place, but if it hasn't, and this sinning person doesn't listen to the witnesses, it's to be told to the church so the whole church knows and can pray for that individual and speak to that individual if they know them. If he still doesn't listen, then Christ said to put them out of the fellowship publicly. But someone might say, but if you've forgiven the person, can you still follow that process? And our answer is yes. We must forgive the person whether they repent or not. And that's something done in the heart. And that forgiving heart allows us to go about the discipline process the right way. It's not for revenge. It's not for punishment. It's for the good of that person who committed the sin. It's for the good of the church. It's for the honor of Christ. It's because God commands us to do it. My point is you need to see the teaching, the passages on forgiveness and the passages on church discipline as being complementary, not contradictory. Well, here are some final questions I need to quickly answer related to forgiveness. Number one, well, what if I don't feel like doing this? Well, that's okay. Just wait. Number two, no. <laughs> Just see if you're listening. We're commanded to forgive. We're sinning if we refuse to do it. You see, forgiveness is a matter of obedience, not feelings. Is apologizing the same thing as asking for somebody's forgiveness? Not necessarily. Do you know what the word apology means? It literally means to make a defense. So when some people say, I apologize, sometimes it does, it does go like this. Hey, listen. I'm sorry I said what I said when you did what you did. There's a little bit of an attack still, finger pointing. Isn't the better approach just to keep it clear and use biblical language? It takes a lot more humility to say, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? 
even takes more humility to say, yes, don't say, oh, it's all right, I forget it. I forgive you. I don't want to get hung up on language. No doubt the heart intent is the main thing. Somebody can mean the right thing when they say, I apologize. But biblical language is best. Number three, what about forgiving God? Early in our marriage, when we were having some difficulty, my wife was given a book that had a chapter in it that said, people need to forgive God. Suppose Christian book. I mean, after all, God is sovereign. If something bad's happened in your life, some tragedy, some whatever, sin against you, whatever. I mean, God was involved in that. And so part of your anger and misery is because you're angry at God. So you need to literally forgive God. What about that? Glad you asked. I'm going to give you R.C. Sproul's one-word answer. It's blasphemous. That's what he said. Good answer. Last one, what about forgiving ourselves? I hope you're sitting down for this one. There is no such thing as that. The Bible never speaks in those terms. It never mentions the notion of forgiving yourself. Someone who talks about forgiving self needs to acknowledge that if God has forgiven their sin, then the sin is fully dealt with. And I've heard people say that. I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I'm thinking it, but I don't say it in those moments. Oh, you're higher than God. I, I didn't know that. You know, his forgiveness is down here, but your standards are so much higher. I think in many cases, people say that they just can't forgive themselves. And what they're really likely dealing with sometimes is just regret overwhelming regret. And regret can stay with you a long time. But it also may be something else. It may be that the person just doesn't want to admit that they were sinful enough to actually do that evil thing. <laughs> Jay Adams has a good quote on that. At times, people complain over an inability to forgive themselves after having received forgiveness from God or others. The real difficulty usually stems from the fact that the person feels guilty because he knows that, although the unfortunate act has been forgiven, he's still the kind of person who did it. So people must humbly accept the reality of their own sinfulness and consciously rejoice in God's gracious forgiveness every time that sin comes to their mind. Some final implications to leave you with. First of all, it's just the importance of training the conscience, no doubt. If our conscience is going to function properly, we need to train it with Scripture, and that's accurately handling Scripture. There are people whose consciences are, are burdened and, and, and in bondage because they're inaccurately handling some Old Testament rules and regulations that was for the nation of Israel alone. So we must understand the whole counsel of God, but accurately handle the whole counsel of God. So our conscience is helping us. Another implication, since forgiveness is so involved with relationships, so important, listen, forgiveness, therefore, is important in this relationship called marriage. And here is the other quote by Joel James, and I said, I think there's a, down at the bottom where it says piercing, I think it's supposed to say piecing, but a married couple that is dealing with many issues, especially from the past, needs to erase the record of the historical offenses by asking Christ's forgiveness for what they've done and by asking and granting each other forgiveness as well, once biblical forgiveness has wiped up the spilled ink of their bitterness, they can make progress in piecing their broken relationship back together. So helpful. 
And third, no doubt, the most important implication, it is crucial that you deal with guilt. It's crucial not for your own, just your own peace and your happiness here. It's important for where you will spend eternity. God is holy, God is just, and therefore he must punish sin. And he declares he'll do that in Scripture. I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day, anger every day towards sinners. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, denying the truth, refusing to believe the truth. You see, this is all very sobering to ponder. And what makes it even more sobering to ponder is God knows even our secret sins. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, with whom, to whom we're accountable. How sobering is that? God is holy and just, and he sees all infractions of his law, all sin. And his justice must be satisfied, and no sinner can satisfy that justice. But the good news of the gospel is that the merciful God sent his own son, God in human flesh, to satisfy divine justice through his perfect life of obedience and his willing death on the cross to pay the payment of sin. And his resurrection from the dead proved that his life and death were successful and efficient and sufficient. So to eternally deal with your guilt, there is no other way. You must repent of sin and seek forgiveness through faith in Christ. There's no other way to escape the condemnation of the all-seeing God. There's no other way to know joy and purpose in this life or to have life in heaven. So come to him. He's such a good God. He's so willing to save sinners. He loves to care for and love sinners all their days. Exodus 34, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness. So come to him for the forgiveness of your guilt. Whether you feel it or not, that's your position if you're outside Christ. The psalmist put it beautifully, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. The alternative to that is living with no hope now, no promise of God's help and care and guidance now in this life, and eternal judgment to come. You come to Christ and what you find is a never-ending fountain of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even this topical study so we can think rightly about these important topics, about how you define guilt and repentance and forgiveness and how to be reminded of how sweet and wonderful forgiveness is. The forgiveness we have from you, a merciful God. So, Lord, I do pray for anyone who's not living under the banner of that promise of your pardon. I pray that you would bring them to humility to cry out as the publican did, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that you might forgive them. 
I pray for anyone here that's struggling in a relationship with someone else where there needs to be forgiveness sought and offered. I pray that you would bring humility to both sides so that forgiveness can be extended and received and kindness and graciousness can return. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us all these things. In our Savior's name, amen.